And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Kellen and Alex Show. How you doing, boys? Jacob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. This is your first time on the Kellen and Alex Show. We've had David once before, uh, but your first time. Yeah, so yep, it yeah, is indeed. You're the last proletariat member to get in. <laughs> yeah, so so I heard. I'm slightly insulted, but whatever. I'm happy. I we made finally it got you on for yep. an explosive topic. Oh, and yes. David, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Alex. Can't wait to have this great discussion. So nukes, boys. Oh yes, nukes. We have them. A lot of countries now have them. And yeah, uh, you know, I just read Anscombe's. Uh, what was it called? Truman. It basically, so Truman was coming to Oxford to give to receive an honorary degree, mm-hmm. and Elizabeth Anscombe is a philosopher in Oxford. Uh, did not think he should receive the degree because, in her words, uh, he was basically a mass murderer. Mm-hmm. That's what she thought. And she wrote this big polemical work, and uh, she tore into the people who were defending Truman because they made all sorts of like, well, and into the war, you know, like people's lives were saved because they didn't have to invade Japan. Um, and she's like, you can't use a killing innocence leads to a good end. You can't use that as a motive right. for the nuclear dropping of the weapons, right? Sure. So anyways, do you agree with Anscombe's assessment? Maybe it's the first question. Um, yes. So we read it in uh, contemporary, whatever, in the spring, whatever mm-hmm. sort of a class that was with coronavirus and everything else. Um, the principle, yes. So my my overall thing with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to sort of put my overall view out there and then we'll, we'll hash it out. But... I'm not convinced personally by the arguments either side that dropping the bombs were moral or immoral. I'm open to being convinced, but I'm also not sure that we will ever have all the information we need to actually know definitively. So in that sense, um, I don't like what Anscombe did. I think her argument is is good and solid, but I don't know that it, it I don't know, corresponds to history, shall we say. See, it's hmm. funny. So I'm coming at this from a, a slightly different angle in that, and this was something that myself and Alex had sort of mentioned just before the podcast, is uh, I don't like Anscombe's letter very much. I read it and found it kind of unconvincing and a little boring, to be honest with you, especially because I had high expectations, it being Anscombe. <laughs> but I think the question of whether or not we'll ever have every historical fact, I'm not quite sure that's relevant because I think we have enough historical facts to know that it was definitely an immoral action. Let's go few through uh, some of them, right? So, I mean, uh, America knew how Japanese was the Japanese were operating with surrender at, to, up to that point in time, right? So, when they were taking uh, Iwo Jima out of the, I think it was eighteen thousand Japanese soldiers who were entrenched there, ninety nine percent of them died. There was only one percent who actually surrendered, right? And this was played out in Okinawa as well, where you had a hundred thousand troops and only like seven thousand surrendered. There was this whole like notion of if you surrender. Right? And if the Japanese people surrender, it's completely dishonorable. It's like worse than being killed. And they'd even commit suicide and stuff. 
Um, and you have in, uh, you know, all the leaders meet in Potsdam and they make the Potsdam Declaration. Basically, after they've captured Berlin and now it's the focus is on Japan, they're saying, okay, Japan, you need to unconditionally surrender. That's one of the conditions. Well, they didn't say Japan as a whole. They said Japanese military needs to unconditionally surrender. Uh, they didn't specifically name the emperor that he needed to like step down or anything, but they said that war criminals were going to be, you know, charged. Um, they didn't want to, you know, enslave the Japanese people or anything. They just wanted them uh, a lot of pro-democracy things with the Potsdam. And the way they ended it was, if this is not accepted, Japan will have um, something like unimaginable destruction. And they left it very open-ended, right? And at that point in time, Trin- the Trinity test had happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So the UK and the US knew about the bomb uh, because they had actually merged their uh, their nuclear programs. Uh, the UK had actually started their nuclear program in 39. Manhattan Project didn't get going till 41. It was called like the Allies Tubes uh, Project in the UK. So they merged that at the same time they merged their intelligence organizations. And uh, with the Quebec Agreement, they agreed that we will not drop a bomb unless the UK and America both agree on it. So when Truman actually had to make the final decision to drop it, the UK actually had to approve it, mm-hmm. prime minister. Um, so anyways, that uh, the notion of like the Japanese did not want to surrender. When the Potsdam Declaration came out, um, there was a, a term for it, a Japanese term. Um, it was like uh, shikata no um, mizu. I, I definitely got that wrong. <laughs> but it's basically um, killing by silence. So we're not going to give a reply to the Potsdam Agreement. And then the U.S. and everybody else took that as, okay, well, they denied our agreement. And so now it's justification for total war against Japan so we can get our unconditional surrender that we wanted, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there was, so to Anscombe, she said, okay, well, this is a tax on innocence, on innocent um, people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There was a, uh, a military base there in Hiroshima with like 20,000 soldiers. Nagasaki, there was like 150 soldiers, so one the same. But she said, this is deliberate, intentional attack on innocent, uh, on innocent civilians intended to kill them. Therefore, it's murder. Right. So historical circumstances for Anscombe doesn't make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you guys think of that, that argument? Again, in principle, it's good. So, so the whole crux of my um, uncertainty over the bombings is the qualification of the Japanese population as innocent. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence, but then again, not enough. And I don't know that I don't know that there's any way to get enough that they wouldn't be innocent in the way that most people termed innocent in military conflicts throughout history have been called innocent. Um, right. Yeah. So that's kind of my initial. Do you remember Anscombe's definition of innocence that she gives? It was basically those who are harming or are immediately providing for those who harm. That's what she said. And and it's kind of a very broad definition. It's like, okay, well, what about farmers and stuff? She said, okay, farmers are excluded. I'm like, okay, well, if there's no food, obviously they can't fight. So you are supplying. But that's that's what she said. So I guess like munitions factories and stuff, Mm -hmm. if there's civilians working there. I think, yeah, the difference would be what are they supplying? Are they supplying the means of harm or are they supplying human needs? So farmers would be excluded because they're supplying human needs, mm-hmm. like the, the, you know, satisfying the need of hunger. But a munitions worker is supplying weapons. And so those are distinct categories. Right. So yeah. this intentional, well, also take like 
the Tokyo bombing, which happened, I think, a month before. Do you guys know about the the fire, the fire bombing? Bombings. Sure. Yeah. It was like the fire I was actually looking up of, like of Germany, as I understand them. Yeah, basically the same as that. It was a uh, like a uh, it was uh, a napalm derivative that they put in these bombs, yep. and then they actually targeted the most densely populated part of Tokyo, which was East Tokyo at the time. And I think 120,000 people died, which is more than individually Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Together, it's like, it's more, but um, that also, I mean, you'd have to include that in the... Yeah. Yeah. It all comes into the same um, question. So, So my thing with the innocence of it is while the civilians were not uh, immediately threatening the allied forces. I mean, in, in that regard, none of the Japanese home forces were, we were just bombing them all. I looked it up. They had, I think two and a half million, um, army, you know, regulars and about a million sailors ready for combat, but none of them were doing anything besides the handful of zeros and pilots they still had that would occasionally challenge bombing raids. None of their forces pose any immediate threat. I realize that's not probably exactly how Anscom intended it, um, but that is a little bit the way it comes across to me. Um, my issue with the civilians, and I didn't even write down the, the Japanese name for it because goodness knows I would have butchered the pronunciation. Yeah, um, like I did just earlier. <laughs> yeah, but they, they had um, what was called the Volunteer Fighting Corps. And it was organized in March of 45 initially, and they were primarily trained as firefighters and um, like evacuation, first aid sort of stuff. So um, not combatants, but military support. Mm-hmm. But just a month later in April of 1945, um, they were switched over to military training. So they were organized centrally from the top down. And the sources I said said every single male from the ages of 15 to 60 was organized into a military unit and wow. every female from 17 to 45, which is the vast majority of the Japanese population, were organized in the military units and received combat training. Now, where then, so that's, that's where they take on a real resemblance to soldiers where they lose that resemblance is just because of the economic situation in Japan. They had no uniforms and virtually no weapons. They said the majority of them were armed with things like bamboo spears. Um, but even still, like for me, when I hear of, I think they said there were 28 million, throughout whole number, 28 million people centrally trained and organized as a military unit. That doesn't sound so innocent to me anymore. Now, I realize That's that they, they are civilians still in a sense, yeah. and they were still living their ordinary lives but they had central organization and training like that. That's where the line gets really blurry for me. And that's where I just, I don't know. I'm not convinced. So thoughts, just like a crazy thought of being like a 16 year old girl with a bamboo spear and thinking like, I have to protect my homeland or something. That's just so true. So nuts. Anyways, (laughs) it is. And I think one has to be really careful because essentially it's false to say, because people are being prepared to help defend their home, that therefore that should be considered combatants. I mean, if you look at uh, Berlin, right before it was taken over by the Russians, right? Well, it was sort of the race between America and Russia, the allies in Russia, who would sort of get to Berlin first. Mm-hmm. And once Germany realized that Russia would get there first, they began giving as many weapons as they could to everyone because they knew that once the Russians came, they would destroy the city because, you know, sort of retaliation for what Ru- uh, Germany had done when it invaded Russia. Yeah. So... By that logic, you'd say, well, actually, at that point, Russia was then justified in the raping and looting and destroying of the city because, well, the women and children were being given as many weapons as they could. I think when someone is defending their home against invaders, that doesn't make them a combatant. And also just because, especially what 
When were the bombs dropped? What August? Uh, August. Beginning of August. Okay. Six, six and ninth, I think. Okay, so 45. a couple of months. So you have people being trained in a non-compact position to assist in as many ways as possible, right? Like um, the same fire brigade and uh, hospital work. And then a couple of months, right, before the bombs and before the anticipated invasion, that like the government says, all right, we're going to begin training you to use weapons. Again, these aren't soldiers. And I think to say, oh, these people are soldiers because the government said we're going to begin training you to be soldiers and we're going to give you some sort of weapon. I almost, I just feel like essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to justify the fact that it happened. Um, and I think, I mean, it's kind of funny because I mean, I was just, I didn't even realize this, but apparently Russia began trying to invade Japan. So that, that also, yeah. and apparently, because it happened in between the two bombings. And so people now think that that had more influence on the surrender than mm. even the dropping of the bombs. So to some degree, I all, all, almost feel like the discussion of what would have happened if the bombs hadn't been dropped, like, oh, they ended, the bombs ended the war. That I, I'm beginning to realize that may not even be true. But regardless, I just think you can never take the position that well, we were about to invade and we would have lost a lot of lives and they would have lost a lot of lives and these people were going to fight to defend their country. Therefore, it was fine that we killed people who were... I mean, yeah, I mean, like Alex was saying, it's insane to think that, yeah, you've got these like 16, 17-year-old girls or these 15-year-old boys who are just being given a weapon and told like, all right, if an American comes into your town, you have to try and kill him. Because, I mean, that's just so contrary to, you know, in some degree, it's a real perversion of human nature. And so I think we're almost buying into that by saying, yeah, it was, it was justified to kill them. You know, every, every citizen was a member of the militia. It's like, if anyone invaded America, you'd think, well, people would be told, all right, when they come in, defend yourself. So, but that, that, that doesn't justify killing them no. in a certain sense. You know? Especially they weren't invading at, we weren't invading at that point in time. I and mean, we were like hopping islands and stuff, but the bombs were... Yeah just from a plane they, they went off from one of the bases and then yeah dropped it and came back That's i also it. want to clarify one of your points alex about um unconditional surrender because yeah. i'd always been led to believe that actually that was intimately connected to the emperor and it implied a renunciation of his authority mm. um and it was as i understand the allies had actually almost given terms that um necessitated a japanese refusal in large part because of the divine status of the right. emperor for the Japanese. Yeah, and that's interesting to think like what the discussions were within, you know, the emperor's like inner circle of okay, do these terms mean I'm going to be put on trial and hung as the emperor? Because that would have been like <laughs> insane, right? Inconceivable. Yeah, and I actually I remember so. And uh, you have to question like if the Allies really wanted peace, if they were really seeking to end the destruction of lives. Why would they give those sorts of terms? Yeah. Why didn't they just say you can? So after the war, they let the emperors like uh, the emperor to continue and for them to have like an emperor uh, emperor style government. And it's like, why didn't they just make that term in the beginning at the Potsdam Declaration? They would have been more inclined to just say, OK, we'll we'll go along with that because they agreed to that later on. Because Japan's final agreement that they made with the allies was the emperor is going to re retain his state. We're going to have democratic processes implemented and stuff. Yeah. But like, so Douglas MacArthur was asked after the war, like, because he didn't know about the bombs till after they were dropped. He's like, do you think the bombs are, you know, uh, necessary to make them surrender? And he's like, no. <laughs> he said, uh, <laughs> if they would have just told them you can keep the emperor, they would have surrendered when, when Russia invaded, actually. Yeah. 
Yeah, when they invaded Manchuria again. Um, that puts a whole different light on the, the picture. Um, because you make ambiguous terms which could lead to the complete destruction of your government and your societal system and then you just say I'm not even going to make a reply and then all of a sudden out of nowhere they have this bomb that just kills all your people you know hundreds of thousands of people in one of your major cities it's like that's a way different story than just like we refuse we will not surrender to the death you know and then we drop it right it makes you a lot more sympathetic to the Japanese um, Japanese cause you also have to ask the question of how serious that commitment was to defending every inch of Japan, right? Because if we say, well, they were equipping their women and children to fight because they were refusing to give up Japan, then the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the dropping of the bombs would not have been seen by the Japanese as... Um, you know, the crossing of a line that they couldn't tolerate any longer because it would have just been like, well, yeah, we knew that was going to happen because that's why we were equipping them to fight because the Americans were coming and we knew a lot of our women and children were going to get killed. But it does seem to imply if there is a causal connection between, uh, at least in the American perspective, between the dropping of the bomb and the surrender, Mm. then there was never an intention on the Japanese part to just allow all of their women and children to be killed. Hmm. Because otherwise, why why did they surrender when it after the bomb? So, yeah, I don't know. I think those are some good points. Um, a few things. So one thing I disagree with that I think both of you have been saying is that all this um puts the atomic bomb. I, and I guess I don't know exactly, but puts it in a completely new light. And this is something I don't know that it does, at least in the sense of the morality of the bombing. Yeah, whether or not they were going to bring, and this is where like I. 100% agree with it. if they targeted innocent civilians the bombings were immoral. Sure. Doesn't matter if they brought about the end of the war, doesn't matter how many American soldiers or Japanese soldiers were going to die in a in a full-scale and amphibious invasion, none of that matters. Mm. What matters was is like in a sense I actually think you can isolate the bombings and and look at it and say was it immoral in in the moral um quality of the bombings themselves. Now there's all sorts of things like um, Truman's responsibility that obviously cannot be taken in isolation that you have to take accounts for of the course. information he had and the pressure and stuff. And, and so in things like that, everything else comes into play, but in the morality of the bombings themselves, I think those can be taken in isolation. Yeah. In that and regard. Just say they're immoral, right? Can't kill innocent lives. If, so it's murder. If, if, if they were innocent lives. Um, one thing, so David, you were talking about, you know, if somebody was to invade the U S you know, as a proud American, I would like to say that at most of the country, at least the Midwest and Texas, um, would rise up in arms, you know, and, and California get overwhelmed. Yeah, no I, I wouldn't have too much hope <laughs> for them. Um, but I, th- I do think there is something of a difference. And actually, I, I, I think potentially the most useful difference is between Japan and Germany. In Germany, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't like a, a centralized, coordinated effort to train the civilian population. Like you said, when when they realized that the Soviets were coming at Berlin. It was just a last ditch. And that's where I understand like, yes, they wanted to defend their home and they were going to do everything they could to do that. And so in that regard, those civilians then are immediately defending their home. I think the difference with Japan is, is twofold. First off, the fanaticism for the emperor was something you just didn't see in Germany. Yes, they were for the fatherland and everything else. But by the end of the war, I mean, there's good evidence. A lot of the Germans were tired of the war. They wanted the war to end. And you can see that in territory that then were occupied by the allies. There weren't constant uprisings behind the front lines. Like once, once the front moved through, 
the lines quieted down behind it, like territory that was, was conquered, even in Germany, not just retaking France. In Japan, now, obviously, we hadn't actually taken any of the home islands yet. We had only retaken other islands. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fanaticism of the for the emperor and that sort of religious fervor, I think, would have changed that situation. And that then led into why I think the civilian population uh, was, I don't know if saying interested in being trained, but I think there was very little resistance in Japan to the central organization and training and even if you say it was only a few months, I mean, it was it was three to three and a half months prior to the bombings. I don't know how much, how long boot camp is for an ordinary person, but like, I think it's that long or not even quite that long. But that's, okay. I think that's, again, that's a, just a silly comparison though. And I think it is, it's sort of, you are just blurring the lines between combatants and civilians. Because first of all, you're presuming that at that point, they told all of their civilians, all right, you're going to boot camp for three months. You know, so obviously this was something that was, built into a civilian life. And so three months of being a civilian and going to night classes on how to use your bamboo spear is very different from, you know, being sent to a a camp and being trained in, you know, uh, military discipline and order and and how to use weapons. Um, I mean, I completely grant your point on the religious dimension of Japanese culture. Again, I'm almost just not sure how that's relevant because unless you are saying that there is no substantial difference between a soldier whose job it is to fight the Americans in this scenario and a you know, mother of three who's been told, if the Americans invade, this is your duty to, to help defend your village or town. Unless you're saying there's no substantial difference between the two, then I think it's almost irrelevant whether or not they had some military training or not, you know. Um, and I think there clearly is a substantial difference because one is someone who's an enlisted soldier whose entire job it is if he ever sees an American is to kill him, right? Or to invade his country. In, in fact, that's what Japan was still trying to build up to do, right? Mm-hmm. It was to b- invade America again. Um, whereas this, you know, married mother with a bunch of kids, like that's not her job. Like that's not her interest or her desire She's just trying to live her life, but she knows that if America invades, there is a certain obligation she has to the emperor to, or to the town that she's in to defend it. Hmm. I don't know. I and just, it, and I is just, your point like it's kind of peculiar to Japan that they would be, you have all these civilian conscripts being possible if there was an invasion, right? And that puts a different light on whether they were innocent or not. So meaning like those 200,000 people in Hiroshima who are civilians if we invaded Hiroshima, all 200,000 would become, well, the ones who were able to, would become in a way civilian conscripts. But that, I guess that's future combatants. At that point in time, they wouldn't be combatants, right? They, they would still be innocents. Is, maybe. Is that, is that what the contention is? Yes. I think that's an interesting way of framing it. So then maybe my question would be, and, and again, I'm not deciding on this for myself. So in the U.S., we've got like the National Guard and Reserve. Those are uniformed, armed forces with day jobs. I mean, they're, they're otherwise ordinary sure. people. What sort of a military target are, are those people? We have, in the town just south of us, we have an army, army National Guard, maybe, post. And you've got a whole bunch of camouflage Jeeps and Humvees and everything else sitting out yeah. there in a barbed wire enclosure. Like, is that a legitimate military target? And it's right next to a school. 
and some sort of a hardware store, if I remember correctly, and the high school soccer stadium is on the other side. Like, is is that a legitimate military, tar- military target? So, so if you nuked that <laughs> and the other school and other stuff, well, well, you're at war and it got nuked, would that be justified? Jacob Schmeising. Well, not nuking it because then there's a whole bunch of other, the other people around it were taking as civilians. But I'm talking yeah, like, yeah. like something like Reserve or National Guard. Mm. They have centralized training, centralized organization, some sort of weaponry. And when the government calls, they become soldiers. So I think- the To point, what degree are they, are they civilians? And this is just, I'm, I'm not, it's not a loaded question. Oh, right, like right, I am just it, interested in like- question. As far as I'm aware, at least sort of just trying to, trying to think through this, this scenario, if they were in uniform in their camp being given guns and being told the enemy's just around the corner, get ready to fight, you can bomb them. If they're at home with their families and they're ready to be called up if needs be, and you just nuke them and their families, that's immoral. To mean like they pose a threat. Sure. So so maybe there is this implication that yeah, well, they they would be willing to fight if needs be, but they're not posing an active threat. I don't. Yeah, see I how guess just wondering like combatant. how how close is the threat? Right, they're at home. Sure, they could be called up tomorrow. Because isn't that and isn't, then go isn't and then they're a military target tomorrow and not today? Isn't that why we make a distinction though between a, a healthy, fit person and someone who's been injured in war? Like, if someone gets their arm blown off in a battle. And then you come across them on the field. You don't shoot them in the face because the point is, is that right now they're not posing a threat to you. And maybe 10 seconds ago they were, but they're not right now. Okay. A specific historical example though, the Japanese, are you, do you know what I'm about to say about the Japanese? They, they would have situations where they're wounded. Uh, they would have wounded and they would like, when the allies were coming up, they would act dead. And then like blow themselves up or sure. do a bonsai attack or something like that. Scared the hell out of the American soldiers, right? Because sure. you never know if someone's dead or not. I mean, our policy even today in like in the Middle East, when you when you shoot at somebody and they're on the ground, you go up and then you make sure they're dead. That came, I think that originated in the US policy for military soldiers, originated with Japan or invasion of Japanese islands, because they would shoot them, think, oh, this guy's dead. And then come up and they would just be playing dead, whatever. I don't know. But yeah, you're right with the wounded. You're not supposed to just come up and kill them. But, but they still <laughs> cool. could pose a threat anyways. Absolutely. And so when they're posing an active threat, you yeah. do kill then them. Then you have a justification. But then, but then again, so then the sort of the implication in your question is if you come across a wounded person who you've just been fighting, do you kill them on the presumption that they might pose a threat to you in a couple of seconds? You probably shouldn't. shouldn't. You probably, <laughs> the moral imperative there is no. Yeah. And so, well, I, I, I do agree. And I, and I think that does kind of loop back to Jacob's point. And I think it's what's the sticking point for a lot of people is the Japanese were more fanatical. But that to me just doesn't, again, unless you take the more fanatical element that was present in the Japanese psyche and you use it to say there was no difference between combatants and civilians. I almost don't see, I don't really, I, I see it more of a red herring than anything else. Hmm. So, Getting back to the bomb and the actual Hiroshima Nagasaki. Uh, yeah. What do you guys think about the, um, we told them Potsdam declaration, you should unconditionally surrender. And then I think it was a week after we're dropping the bomb, right? Uh, 
do you think let's just go to historical circumstance we do you think we gave them like was here's the thing that i'm trying to figure out like were we really intending them to surrender with the potsdam or did we want to really test out this bomb on a city you know like I mean, we're never going to know the intentions of Truman and these other people. But imagine you've been work, your best scientists have been working on a one bomb for four or five years. You've been trying to use it on Germany the whole time, right? Because that was FDR's whole thing: is we're going to use this on Germany. And then instead of being like Russia's going to invade you, you must surrender and you can keep your emperor, which is what did happen. We give them this really bad terms, unconditional surrender, and we uh, make it ambiguously: you're going to get destroyed, like. Do you think there was any intention to like, let's try this thing out? I, I think there's, there's a lot of good evidence for that. And this is actually one of my biggest things. So in saying that the bombing was immoral, was that even, and I think even if you were somehow to grant that the entire Japanese population could be qualified as combatants and not as civilians, why did we bomb a city and not just drop an atomic bomb in the middle of the countryside somewhere? Like you could have... Because there is still that that principle of war in which if you can avoid killing people, you have a responsibility to do so. Like that's that's part of waging a just war. And so, like, why why did we target a city? And so the reason I've heard quite often is we were fairly sure the Soviets were in their own nuclear program at this point. We could see the writing on the wall. Germany wasn't going to be a threat. You know, England was going to be good, but not not a world power. Not like the Soviet Union was like the cold, the makings of the cold war were already there. And so bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki was as much a warning to the Soviet Union as it was an attempt to get Japan to surrender. Hmm. That's, that's a theory I've heard. There's a lot of political game. There was, yes, it was. Yes. We knew Japan was going to surrender sooner rather than later. The bombing was, were ultimately to warn the Soviet Union and say, look at what we've got. And then they had their own bomb like nine months later or something. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) But yeah, so that that's a theory mm, I've heard, and thus, uh, thus the arms race. Yes, but and I'm sure we'll get onto that in due time. Yeah. But I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I'm not familiar. I haven't read the post am agreement uh, the, or terms, so mm. I'm not really qualified to speak on that. All I'd say is, generally, if you're sincerely seeking to end a war, you're interested in ongoing negotiations mm. and. The, the the different factors that, as you said, it was so soon after the after the proposed agreement. And then given that now we can think that maybe there's evidence to believe that it didn't even particularly influence the Japanese surrender. Yeah. That, yeah, it was more display of American, uh, American power. Yeah, and you wonder how much then, like vengeance is in that too. I mean... Sure. You know, they also pay back of pay Americans back for, yeah, for Pearl, Harbor, Pearl Harbor, for all sorts of stuff. Um, and I mean, yeah, because I mean, it was easily sort of the most, well, arguably the most brutal front, wasn't it? The Pacific front. And again, Jacob could speak more to this, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be there. The other front I wouldn't want to be on is the Russian side of like Stalingrad stuff. I would not want to be a Russian soldier versus <laughs> I mean, the Germans in winter. I would have rather stayed out of World War II. Well, I think I would have yeah, rather. Out of World War II, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I would have rather <laughs> been a Russian soldier versus the Germans in winter than a German soldier versus the Russians in winter. That's, that's, that's probably true. <laughs> that's good as well. Yeah. No, yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. And it's so, uh, like you said, I mean, the, the Japanese fanaticism or whatever. I mean, that must have been like incomprehensible to people at the time. 
I mean, imagine like the first kamikazes and stuff. Like, by the way, I, I think they were like, this is, I, I, I'm going to have to verify this, but one of the things they gave their pilots, the kamikaze pilots, methamphetamines, when they sent them on these like kamikaze stuff, they gave them all sorts of weird drugs and stuff. But like, what level does it, you have to take a person to convince them that, okay, well, we're losing this war, but I need you to sink battleships by taking your plane and ramming it into the enemy's ship and you're going to die. You're going to do it for the country. You know, it's like, try and convince an American to do that. You know what I mean? Like, what was the society of Japan at that time that they reached that pinnacle of like national fanaticism? It really is unlike any other. Um, it's not Western anyway. This isn't in our liberal conception of like, well, you do stuff for the good of the individual and then we rely on nationalism when we need it. Like they reached the pinnacles of nationalism. And uh, that must have been nuts. Anyways. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think though, there can be a, a slight... A slight, it can be easy for us to be slightly feel slightly superior to to people like the Japanese and also, I mean, to the Germans. Um, you know, because yeah, so obviously there were a lot of atrocities and they did, they did take it to the next level to some degree, right, with their warfare. But I mean, an almost just as radical a shift, if you think um, from how the Americans were going about the water when they were interacting with kamikaze pilots of the Japanese. Almost as radical a shift was introduced in World War One with the use of gas, and you know, like yeah. these weapons that, for the first time, were designed just to completely wipe out an army with, without a single shot being fired. Mm-hmm. Um, in the invention of tanks, and then what ended up being becoming the carpet bombings of the German cities mm-hmm. by the British and the British cities by the Germans. I mean, you you feel like. I mean, war inevitably brings out the best and the worst in people, but I do think that World War One and Two, just in general, but taking out the Japanese fanaticism. I mean, it, the, I, I've come to realize over time, you know, much as I am very patriotically British and I, I love the British, and I think Churchill was a real hero. He did some terrible things. Uh, I mean, one of the worst among being sending all the Russians who fled the country sending them back to Stalin to be executed as part of the negotiation. Same with the UK and US sending the Jews back to, um, yeah, not accepting Jews from Israel, mm-hmm. you know, and, and other places. Yep. Um, so, you know, I think, I think what, what state one has to be to, uh, to, to be okay bombing a city like the way the Allies did when they were attacking Germany. And they, I mean, I don't know, just when you read about what it was like in, you know, Dresden and, and some of these cities. Like, I, I mean, you might know, but like the intense heats that the city, like it was oh, yeah. like, it was basically an inferno, almost like, yeah. a, you know, just like a. Yeah. And is there like a substantial, thing. you know, um, what would you say? Wow, I'm forgetting the word now. Substantial difference between a, let's say the carpet bombing, like Dresden attacks, the Tokyo bombings, you know, the fire bombings and nuclear bombs. I mean, I understand there's the difference of like the magnitude, it's instantaneous and stuff, but. The intention seems the same, which is kill lots and lots of civilians to cause pressure on the people and the government to surrender. Absolutely. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, which is actually may, might come up later when we uh, talk about the present uses and purposes of nuclear Tactical weapons. nukes. So, <laughs> but are, no, are you I, with I, MacArthur, I, I, right? Did you hear? So MacArthur wanted to use something like 55 tactical nukes on North Korea during the Korean War. Have you heard about that? <laughs> I hadn't. 
So I heard, so actually Josh has his book on uh, the nuclear folly or something like that. So mm. slight tangent, uh, but- <laughs> we, love, we love me a good tangent. Yeah. So, so following World War II, advent of nuclear power, and from the start, there were a lot of people who, who didn't trust it, even if the you know, general patriotic atmosphere was that the atomic bombings were justified. A lot of people right from the start weren't fans of nuclear bombs. So the government put all these projects in place to find like, uh, like civil engineering uses basically for nuclear bombs. So they had one, I can't remember, I want to say it was 100, 120 nukes to instantaneously blow a new Panama Canal. Because it was like, it was, it was you know, some, some conflict down there. And we were like, we weren't sure if we were going to keep the canal open and with how vital it was. So like wrote up these plans, did all the calculations, like 120 nukes. And in a second, you would blow an entire canal. There were other ones like... Um, Using thirty That's or forty to insane, isn't it? That's hard hilarious. To, hard to I never got that. It's it's yeah. yeah. They call it Operation Plowshare. So from the Bible, you know, beat the swords into plowshares. So take the atomic bombs and use them for civil engineering. So there are other projects That's for like beautiful. blowing harbors, um, using nuclear weapons up. So obviously, those are some of the more ridiculous uh, aspects of America's nuclear history. Um, but just fascinating kind of funny little things. So. Yeah. That is very interesting that we, we, so Plowshare was an actual operation to basically legitimize nukes by showing commercial. So the peacetime nukes. Like yes. peacetime yes, use. pretty much. Uh, that's crazy. How did <laughs> I never think of that? Yeah. That, that's insane, but it makes total sense. Well, and, um, and that, that could, leading into the disarmament question, that, that, oh. that, that maybe we could figure out good ways to get rid of our nukes that, not only are the, well, what moral, the, the moral solution, but also actually make a good use out of nukes, which right now there is none. So, yeah, like who wants a nuclear reactor in their town? You know, what <laughs> I mean? like even if it's not, producing all the energy, not the residents of Chernobyl, that's for sure. Uh, no, yeah, they're actually in San Diego. There's um, there used to be two nuclear reactors. They're now um, dis dis not in use, but it's on the way from San Diego to L.A. And it's right next to, it's in San Onofre, this like old military base. And uh, they're shaped, there's, there's, there are two of them and they're shaped in that round way and they mm-hmm. have like points at the top and they're the boobs on the way up the five. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so you look over to the left and you get to see the nuclear boobs. It's great. Um, but oh they shut them down because everyone in SoCal was like, no, we don't want, I, I don't care if our energy comes from wherever, but you're not making a nuclear reactor in these areas. That's really interesting. They were trying to find energy uses for it. But it makes total sense because there was so much, I mean, the whole war, war, you know, so much propaganda about everything. And, and it's all trying to make sure that the American people are all are all on board. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the Japanese fanaticism stuff came back in the propaganda. And that really formed the public opinion about, yeah, these are just I, probably a lot of racist sentiment as well. That These are, uh, uh, you know lesser humans who are doing these really fanatical stuff and us good Westerns sure. we're trying oh, yeah. to top of their evil government. And so we're going to, we'll nuke the city, but it's of really course. for their good that we're doing this. Absolutely. And you can even see that in the, um, FDR's basically concentration camps on the West coast where they rounded Ooh, up yeah. Japanese Americans. I forget how many, what the numbers are for them, but yep. they, they weren't, they weren't a whole lot better than concentration camps kind of when it came down to it. So, right. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's that famous uh, was it that photo with the uh, the general and um, some of the emperors or whatever? But they showed him as being like like he's a six foot five guy and it's like a shorter emperor and whatever. And there was a lot of that type of like these are like the second class, you know, 
people, you know, the people in the East, they never really took them seriously. That was actually one of the reasons I think why, you know, Japan was able to expand so rapidly is they'd been kind of following the Western patterns of being colonial. They were like, well, if these guys are going to be colonial, we'll, we'll do it too. And they'd always been eyeing China. And then they finally got their shot and they went after it. But yeah, on the, this, the whole propaganda war of that World War II era. I mean, there's so much we can learn even for today on how the American government really tries to make sure that the American people only have the emotions that are favorable to them. Yeah. You know, whether it's the nukes, whether it's the war on terror, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's whatever, it's really bad for the US government if the American people aren't for their political agendas. And I globally. think it's it's a very important point as Catholics to take into consideration that obviously we do believe in just war that there are times when it is appropriate under certain conditions to go to war and to take life. Right? But it's it's very and and obviously we also know that there are there are have been a lot of wars throughout history which do meet the just war justifications like World War Two, but it's so important to keep the distinctions in your mind that help you see okay like even if a war is justified or certain actions are justified there's a lot which falls outside of what is right and justified and I think one very obvious thing which you're pointing to Alex is the propaganda which is designed intentionally to whip up essentially hatred against a very, very stereotypical um, thing, right? Because if you think that given what it takes to kill another human being, what you have to do to bring someone to this place where they're mentally capable of killing a stranger, right? And obviously... Even if you can get someone to that place, it still has huge impacts on them afterwards, which we now know about with PTSD, which they didn't know about at the time, as far as I'm aware. Um, but what you have to do to someone psychologically to get them to a place where they're willing to kill someone who they have never met and they have no clue who they are. Um, often what is done is this kind of blanket propaganda, which makes every single person of that country or that race into the enemy, right? Mm. I mean, I remember what's crazy is uh, as soon as England declared war on Germany in 1914 during World War I, first of all, it was a really popular decision. I think unlike World War II, World War I was kind of seen as a party when it first started. Yeah. And... Gonna have some fun times with all these cool weapons we got. I know, right? <laughs> and... um all the like it was it became a thing in August of 1914 to kill your Dutchman because it was a German dog. My goodness, yeah, I've never that, I, that, yeah, I've never wait, wait, kill what? Dachshunds. Yeah. Little, yeah. Wiener dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> what? Yeah, because it was like, no. oh, these are German dogs. So be patriotic, kill your dog. You know, if it's if it's a German <laughs> dog, you can't have a German. Yeah, it's that a real terrible. thing. And so isn't that also in like Salisbury steak? Because that's just meatloaf, but meatloaf was German, so they changed it to Salisbury steak. Oh, Isn't that a thing? I haven't heard that, but I would definitely believe it. <laughs> I thought, no, yeah, I thought it was something like that. Like, yeah, yeah very Because it was also, yeah, a German. But that's the thing, isn't it? Isn't it funny that, and I think obviously all of that stuff falls outside the realms of what's legitimate, right? Because yeah. essentially it's it's not harnessing the good virtue of being willing to defend yourself and your loved ones in times of need. 
it's harnessing the negative emotions of, of hatred towards someone else hmm. yeah. um, on account of nothing that they've done, but almost who they are. Yeah. Um, and I would argue to some degree that the maintenance, because also, I mean, we've got to recognize that even things like keeping a standing army is a very recent thing. It's actually very unusual historically to maintain an army all year round. Uh, and it's really only possible, I guess, because of the rise of the modern state. But arguably maintaining nuclear weapons and constantly updating your nuclear program is also this sort of extension of their constant preparation for war mentality, which I think is just an incredibly terrible place to be as a as a sort of you know, country for America or England as a sort of Western society and as a globe, you know, to, to kind of be in this state of constant anticipation or preparation for war that we find ourselves in. I think that maybe we're slightly less aware of today because it's so naturalized, yeah. but which was kind of constantly hanging over people of our parents' generation and our grandparents. The constant theme with like, oh, well, we have nukes and we have standing armies and stuff is like, well, if we don't do that, Russia will be doing that or China will be doing that. So there's no way of going back. We're we're in this modern state where everyone has nukes, everyone has standing armies, everyone's just hyped up for war all the time. And we just have to deal with it by having a better one than they have. Right? That's the that's the general why we shouldn't disarm. Yeah, yeah. Deterrence. Yeah. Deterrence of the the other side. Yeah. yeah. What what would you say to that part of it? Yeah. So I think it's an interesting thought. So one thing that immediately came to mind was the uh, maybe disenchantment with I'm not I don't know how to put it uh, not human flourishing that's not that's not the word I'm looking for but sort of world peace um, following World War One because World War One is the war to end all wars I mean that's what they call it they didn't yep. call it World War One they called it the Great War <laughs> wasn't World War One to World War Two happened yeah um, so I think then. And I really don't have evidence for this. It's just speculation. But I wonder, you know, that, that generation who grew up calling it the war to end all wars, they were the generation that watched their kids go off and fight in an even more terrible one. And so I wonder, like, if that was the point where, where that was the point of no return is we had the war to end all wars and somehow we blew it 30, like under 30 years later. Like, that's, that's all the longer it took us. Like, I could see that being the point where it's worth now, right or wrong, but just psychologically, like it's worth staying ready sure. because goodness knows we thought we were rid of it once and it came back so quickly. It's going to come again. Just sort yeah. of that. And we don't want that sort of psychology of it. of it. Yeah. Like it's better. It's better to live with sort of a stinky situation than to idyllically hope for some sort of a utopia. Just a little bit hyperbolic, but yeah. so we need the church. That's never going to happen. We need grace to get us out of this whole mess. We huh? do. Though. <laughs> I, I think that actually makes a lot of sense to me, Jacob. The only, maybe where I'm not quite sure how this fits in is that primarily the countries who are maintaining standing armies and maintaining nuclear weapons are not, uh, shall we say in a, in a major way, are not countries that were the most impacted by the war. Either war. Right, because, well, I mean, I suppose Russia was was pretty impacted, but I mean, America was on the outside for both wars, really. And it became a little invested, but I guess, you know, in World War II, it got more invested, but it was not a major player, especially in World War I. And then 
I mean, yeah, so North Korea and China had no involvement, essentially, in, in World War One or Two. Well, China in two. It's the forgotten. So yeah, the, the Chinese, the, China, the Chinese always hate the way it's framed because they say World War II started in what, 1930? Because that's oh, when yeah. Japan invaded China. Okay. And, and that, yeah, 30 or 30, yeah, early 30s, whatever. Okay. So they even say, you know, Europe who claims it started in 39, they say, whatever, we, we had it for five <laughs> years before that. Sure. So, so I think that's interesting. So one thing maybe, I see what you're saying actually about the US and it is interesting. I think maybe one part of it is just, I think you're right in that while we didn't end up over-invested in World War I, World War II, especially in the Pacific, stuck with Americans. And then the fact that that immediately led into the Cold War sure. when the Atlantic and Pacific were no longer a defense. Mm-hmm. Like before, that's, that's why we could remain uninvested is the wars were in Europe and in Asia. Sure. And now with the flip of a switch, it comes back to nuclear weapons. But yeah, I mean, the, the war, the oceans are no longer a defense in the same way. Sure. So I think maybe that could be part of the motivation for America inheriting the same mindset as the rest of the world. Sure. Nukes. It's just so weird that you can, yeah, that the president has the magic red button, which apparently doesn't exist, but he has like a, a codes that he can sure. level cities with one. Actually, I, I was heard, hearing a historian basically say that the presidency went from, you know, this checks and balances system to being, after World War II, being so overwhelmingly powerful with being, he didn't have to get co- congressional approval or nothing for just nukes, right? <laughs> and it's such a... um yeah, a crazy thought that at any point in time with one crazy leader, it could all be, what was it? Einstein's fav, uh, famous quote of like, uh, World War II is fought with with guns and bombs. World War III will be fought with nukes and World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yep. that's our future. And um, so with all the deterrence in the world, right? And everyone having standing armies and stuff, would you guys say it's an inevitability? Like we're at, at some point in human history, we will hit the nuclear button, right? I mean, we almost hit it with the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was only, what, like 25 years after they first sure. invented nuclear weapons. Is it an inevitability? Or are these deterrents going continue, to continue to uh, you know, persist and we're going to continue with peace, never have nuclear war until Christ comes again? <laughs> I, I don't think nuclear war is an inevitability. And that even comes with me saying, I don't think that we should necessarily disarm all of our nuclear weapons. Um, so, so a major part of my um, thought for this comes from a book written by an old neighbor that I used to lawn care for, Joe Martino. Um, and it's a book on, on the moral use of nuclear weapons. He was career air force engineer. Um, and he built a gyroscope that was used in various rockets and satellites sort of during the Cold War space race era. So, so brilliant guy, um, Orthodox Catholic his whole life, and, and wrote this book arguing for the, the legitimate possession and, and even use of nuclear weapons. Mm. But a major part of his argument was he thought it would never come to that because at, at the time he wrote it, it was the... the only nuclear powers with any significant nuclear power were still the Soviet Union and the U.S. I don't know exactly when England and France and the other, you know, I think there's nine nuclear powers or whatever today. Um, I don't and know when they- Korea and Iran soon to be the 10th. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Korea, Korea is 
counted among them, I think. It is now. Korea is one of the okay. nine. Um, again, slight tangent, as I was looking that up, it's funny. Everybody acknowledges Israel as one of the nine nuclear powers, but everything has an asterisk and says Israel has never made any comment on if they have the capacity to produce nuclear weapons or what their current nuclear arsenal is. Just the entire world, just just part of that aura of Israel. Yeah. Like, Israel's got nukes. <laughs> Total yeah. side point, but it's just like looking up the nuclear powers. Like most of the other countries take some sort of reporting measure. Like this is how many we have, whatever. Because sure. they at least put on the face of being goodwilled and not wanting to go into nuclear war. Israel's just like, we're not going to say anything. Yeah. So yeah. that's that. But, but part of um, his point in this book is that People aren't idiots. And maybe this goes back to the propaganda thing where everybody who's not on our side is a fanatical maniac who you can't even possibly reason with. The only option is to kill them. So that's just not the way it is. So the the, the Russians weren't idiots. Like they knew if it came down to nuclear war, they knew it was the end of the world. So they knew what that meant. Like, yes, they wanted to win, but they did not want nuclear war. No. And so his his argument is that oh, are you saying on the basis of mutually assured destruction? Yes. Okay. Yes. He's like, they, they, they realized how difficult it would be to conduct a nuclear war without mutually assured de- destruction as did the American side. And he said, and you think that's the biggest reason why is it's, it's this weird sort of quasi deterrent that everybody also th- sort of thinks that nobody else is ever going to use because nobody really wants to wipe the entire world out. Yeah. Um, and and I think there's actually a lot of merit in that position. I don't think we will ever see nuclear and that war. that made the what was it the principle of brinkmanship, right? That we were yeah. gonna because I'm thinking Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So Russia moves their nukes to Cuba without letting us know or, or without you know us knowing. CIA ends up finding it, and then we make our blockade to make sure they don't move more. And if you know Khrushchev said keep your ships going, it would have been like bam, throw the nukes, right? Actually, I think uh, it was submitted to Kennedy, Joint Chief of Staff. Like they were just saying, like, yeah, go ahead and just nuke Russia. Just, just go for it. Basically, like they were trying to tell them, let's start nuclear war sure. before they do. Maybe we'll destroy some of their places before they do ours or whatever. And he was like, no, I ain't doing that, right? <laughs> and Khrushchev didn't either. But we were this close to the first, you know, truly nuclear war, and uh, the deterrent worked on that one occasion. So, uh, hopefully let's have enough, you know, maybe God will grace us enough not to go into, into that. Maybe it'll continue as a deterrent, but it only takes that one occasion for it to be pretty much all over. Mm -hmm. Seems like to me, at least. Um, now here's another interesting question. Okay. Russia nukes New York city. All right. At that point in time, do you nuke them back? Like, is it legitimate if you know it's this mutually assured destruction, if they already preemptively attack, and then do you send the nukes? Are you morally justified in sending the nukes back? So again, it depends depends on what you're targeting. I still hold by you cannot target civilians. So if you're targeting population centers for the sake of them being population centers, no, that's immoral. If you're targeting, you know, central command and control stations, missile silos, military bases, yeah, those are legitimate targets. So even it's, if it's New war. York and Los Angeles get nuked by Moscow, mm-hmm. we can't nuke Moscow. Yes. Morally, you cannot. Yeah. I think maybe, uh, again, at least because we're all sort of on the same page in terms of civilians, um, you know, the Catholic page, so to speak. <laughs> I think what's a more interesting question is, is it uh, 
immoral to keep nuclear weapons, which mm. is where I think maybe me and Jacob would, would diverge in our view. Because uh, I, I would just say that, obviously, again, um, what is it? I realized discussing this with some of the guys downstairs before we started the podcast. You know, while you can use technology for any end technically, because you know there's no intrinsic essence which it is immoral to violate that you know means it, it has its one true end. All technology is made with a certain end in mind, and so just because you say, well, you could use nukes to target military bases, I think what you have to ask is why do we have nukes? What is the rhetoric behind why we have nukes? What was the purpose of nukes? And if you're approaching the question of should we have them based on what is their purpose, then it seems that the obvious answer is no, you shouldn't have them. And just yeah. because you can say, well, keep them in our pocket for a rainy day just so we can use them for something for which they were not created or for which is not the whole aura surrounding nukes. Mm -hmm. You know, <clears throat> a great... Um, somebody made this point very well. So I just was reading before this discussion... Um, book by Finnis Boyle and Grise about nuclear deterrence and sort of they're approaching it from the just the philosophical position and they do delve into Christianity sort of in the last few chapters but the majority of the book is just the sort of philosophical investigation of to what degree is it permissible to have nuclear we uh, weapons as deterrence and their argument is that it is immoral and they basically take they take two positions. They, they say, well, if you're using them to kill innocents, that's obviously immoral. But then they said, well, what if you're just using them tactically? You know, what if you what if you say, well, we're actually just using them to target, you know, um, command control centers and all these um, military bases, and obviously. So what, what they do is they say, well, what sort of what's the rhetoric around nuclear missiles? They're not sort of taking it in the abstract. Because everyone knows if you take a bomb and you drop it on a military base, everyone's fine with that. But the question is, the way people are talking about nuclear yeah. missiles, is it permissible? Isn't that interesting and, how we now distinguish between conventional and nuclear? Sure. Like conventional is like morally okay. Yeah. Nuclear is like never allowed. Sure. You know, because it's well, like, but that, if you drop it on a base... There's nothing there anymore. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? But but conventional, maybe some people get out. Maybe they can survive. But nuke, you know, like it's over and the land is unusable and the people in the surrounding vicinity may be blown up or sure. have cancer or all sorts of stuff, right? But and uh, yeah, so that's sort of so part of that point is the whole rhetoric surrounding. So obviously there was sort of something of a shift, as I understand it. And Jacob, I'm sure knows more about this than me, but there was something of a shift. Um, from the concept of mutually assured destruction to something called sh uh, Strategic Defense Initiative. And I think that was under Reagan, if I'm not mistaken, which was essentially people began, because a, a lot of people were saying how immoral it was to have nukes that just destroyed civilians. They began saying, actually, no, really, the main purpose of our nukes is to destroy command and control centers and you know all this. But something that, that Grise, Boyle, and Finnis point out is that there's always this rhetoric surrounding when they're talking of, oh, of course, you know, you should always know that civilians will always be caught in the blast of this. Like there's sort of, when you drop a nuclear missile, it's always part of it that you kill innocents. 
Um, and, and their point is simply this, that as this is always part of the rhetoric surrounding nuclear missiles, this is the threat that is being leveled against opponents of America or th those people who are threatening America. And a threat is meant to evoke an fright, like a, a certain fear regarding what is being threatened. And so their point is, even if people are now saying, even if governments are now saying, well, the primary target of nuclear missiles is military bases, but civilians will always be caught in the crossfire, then while that remains part of the, the explicit threat delivered, that means it's always meant to evoke a certain fright, uh, a fear of this consequence. And so, and they're saying, so if that's a fear being evoked, it's part of the attention to evoke that particular fear. And so there is this immoral targeting of, of civilians built into the language with which we talk about nuclear missiles. And so even if we say, no, look, nowadays nuclear missiles are more strategic than anything else. They target military bases more than anything else. It's always part of the discussion is, well, of course it will kill innocent people. And therefore sort of for the, for these writers, it's like, well, no, that means it's it's part of the intention and it can yeah. never be separated from that. Like, do you think the original, in, I mean, let, let's go back to the original intention of FDR when and, and Churchill when they signed the Quebec agreements. Yeah. Oh. It was civilian. Like nukes were Absolutely. meant to destroy cities, right? Do you agree with that, Jacob? I mean, originally, now whether or not they can be used tactically. Yeah. Um, I'll say it's a possibility. Again, I don't. I think. I mean, I, I think that's. I, I think. I think undeniable. it's a real possibility, and and, yeah. and and probably more likely than not. But I, I'm not sure. But I, I'll say I'll lean towards yes. How about so there that? were people within the Manhattan Project who said, "Why don't we just blow this up on some random Pacific island?" send the footage to the Japanese, you know, maybe that'll convince them, like you were saying, uh, like like the Manchuria stuff with Russia. Uh, but yeah, no, like if let's say, let's say there was, um, well, okay, we had two major wars that had Russia involved of Korea and Vietnam. No nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons were used in any of them, although MacArthur really wanted <laughs> to send some nukes Korea's way. But um it seemed to be like if one side started justifying tactical nukes, then there it's a slippery slope to nuke a city. That seems to be my, one of my qualms with the the whole like, well, we can use them tactically. Is well, if you can, you know, nuke this specific military target with specific military intentions of killing them, then it's a, a quick slope to say, well, there's a military base next to the city. Oh well, the city's gone, right? But we killed the military base, right? <laughs> Also, I mean, aside from anything else, given how much... Well, so sorry, there, there are two things there. First of all, it seems undeniable to me to address your first point that the original intent around nuclear missiles was the destruction of civilian life, right? I mean, obviously, we're to some degree the inheritors of all of this which developed in the 50s and 60s, right? And that wasn't kind of part of at all what we grew up with. But that's the whole the whole concept of the nuclear holocaust and the complete destruction of mankind came out of this understanding that we have now developed weapons which have been used and now more and more could be used to completely destroy human life uh, and, and innocent human life and destroy everything that we you know understand to be what makes up human civilization. But then 
So that's that's the first thing, and and that's sort of where the whole language of mutually assured destruction came from. And actually, it was it was actually kind of interesting. I was learning recently. Apparently, that first time that phrase was used was in the Franco-Prussian War. Hmm. I'm trying to remember who used it, but it was some sort of. Right- so what was their idea of mutually assured destruction? Well, I know, right? <laughs> it was essentially that. Well, yeah, things are getting so serious, and how easily we can kill each other now, and how easily we can completely destroy each other's countries that but obviously now i mean this is sort of taken to the next level right and that so that's where all that language comes from is this idea you can kill everyone um and actually a really good film to watch uh, in this regard is 13 days i don't know if either of you two have seen this Mm. but this is a film about the cuban missile crisis and it's a phenomenal film about and it brings you into the minds of it's it's mainly from the perspective of um kennedy uh, and sort of his uh, his advisory committee um, in the 13 days that they had from when they first discovered Cuba was building missiles to when they sort of, I guess, made the agreement, uh, the disarmament agreement with with uh, Russia. Anyway, so that's a tangent, but uh, really good movie worth checking out. 13 days. Keep it in mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so let let's just say you you sort of say, well, look, Maybe that's maybe that's the history to nuclear missiles, but now we can just use them essentially as more effective conventional weapons. I mean, there are two things that I I take issue with there. One is if we're just saying that our only purpose of using them is as slightly more impactful um, conventional weapons, then what are they deterring? I'm not I'm not quite convinced of that. And second of all. If you if we think about what the purpose of a a government is in relation to its people, right? Um, and s- self defense isn't a part of that, but it's a part of a large role of government in the sort of protection of the well being of the citizens and the building of a just and fair and true society. I'm I'm not really convinced, given the insane amount of money and resources that are put into the maintenance of nuclear weapons i just don't see how you can justify that as a society as a society that's trying to that struggles with so many issues like i mean you know homelessness and poverty and all these things like how do we justify how much money we spend on nuclear missiles you know so i don't know i'll throw that to jacob (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think that's the justification of it is a, a good and difficult question um i it's one of those things it's i don't know if this is a good answer but almost has to come down to really the deterrent aspect like if you don't there's so many things in life where if if you don't spend another dollar then your previous 99 have been wasted sure and so that might be the driving force now now whether that's legitimate or not you know and it very well may not be but I will say I am grateful that we did have nuclear weapons through the Cold War, and I think I'm still grateful that we do have them. And yes, it is an, I mean, an insane amount of money that we spend towards it. Um, but but I, I'm sorry, but, so maybe the money thing is almost a secondary issue to some degree. Yeah. But I mean, uh, how can I'm not? I'm again, I'm not really. And one could say, well, you know, it's easy to. I mean, I was reading an interesting article by someone who was involved in, uh, he was sort of around Truman when the decision was made to 
he was kind of part of the the committee that was involved in knowing about nucle- uh, the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project and um, and he kind of he was he was writing and saying it, this was in 1946 saying it's so easy for people to look back and say and to criticize us for bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki but when we were there like that was the obvious decision you know to end the war and to save US lives and and I think that is a that is a criticism that has to be taken seriously and I think it is it's fair to say it's easy for someone like me to some degree to sit here and say <laughs> we shouldn't have had nuclear missiles during the cold war but at the same time I don't see how we can say we should have had nuclear missiles during the cold war I mean a lot of things were very useful during world war 2 like I mean when what was it the Yemen agreement that brought about the sending back of all the Russians you know to uh to Stalin you know like that was a very useful thing or the bombings of uh, the fire bombings of you know Dresden and the different German cities were very useful in as far as they precipitated Germany being very demoralized and giving up sooner um it was very useful that we had nuclear missiles during the cold war but if there was the intention even the stated intention that we were going to that that either England or America or, you know well, I guess it would have been just America was going to use nuclear missiles if it came to it that they were willing to destroy Russia re- regardless of what happened to them that mutually assured destruction i i just i just don't see how we can justify that i mean we i think at the end of the day you have to say you know the ends never justify the means and so just because it it brought us through and it meant that the communists didn't take over europe well so what i mean at the end of the day you're only responsible for for doing right and kind of the consequences will be what they will be but i don't really i don't i don't really understand how we can ever justify let's take a scenario right russia doesn't develop a nuclear bomb until 1980 and we're the only country in the world that has nuclear weapons do you think we would use that to bully other countries and get our foreign policy agendas through so meaning we're the only one with nukes i mean it could be russia let's say russia is the one who developed the bomb board let's just take the united states right i mean how much of that would be uh like Okay, we're going to go into this country and and start really having our influence, and they really don't like us. Well, we're sitting on a lot of nukes. Sure. Like, does that? So the fact that there's on both sides the mutually assured assured destruction, the we're kind of balanced in power. Does that keep the peace more than let's say America's the only one? Like, w- would we really properly use? Uh, now, this is just a hypothetical, right? Because we did have the enemy who did have it, but. Doesn't it? Does it not seem that having both sides who do have it seems to make sure there's more balance of power and there's not as much you can bully everyone else because you have nukes? Yeah. So, yes, I think there's there's truth to that, but also I do think it is. You acted like it didn't make a difference whether it was the U.S. or the USSR that had nukes. I actually think it does, and so then again, <laughs> like I said, much of my information for, the, for this topic is from this book. And this is a major point that he makes is Americans have this weird issue with both acting like we're better than everybody else. And then when we are refusing to act like we're better than everyone else. Hmm. So he drew a major difference between the U.S.'s approach to nuclear weapons and the USSR's. Hmm. And he said it was illustrated, like, just look at how the government's treated their citizens. 
like how many millions of Russian citizens died at the hand of their own communist government sure. versus Americans. He said, like right there, that's a difference. He said, Americans have this weird thing, like, oh yeah, we're trying to be all even and equal and fair. And so Russia, like they're good. There's really no difference between us and everything else. He's like, no, that's ridiculous. The US and the Soviets took, like in theory, took fundamentally different approaches to nuclear weapons. So to your point, I mean, I would like to think the U.S. would not have used our nuclear weapons to bully other countries around. Uh, I'm not sure the USR would or wouldn't have. And, and this would be maybe my evidence for that. So even during the Cold War, now it's hard to say because we would have probably opposed most things the Soviet Union wanted to do just because they were the Soviet Union. They would have opposed us just because we were the U.S. But there were still like small countries and random places and things. I mean, you're telling me we couldn't have taken a couple of Mexico states by just like waving some nukes around and the Soviet Union. I mean, they probably wouldn't have really been worried about starting a nuclear war over that, but we didn't do that. Um, neither did Russia. But I also think there's a difference there because the U.S. had a history, right or wrong, of being sort of the, the police nation in many regards. When, when other countries got into conflict, we would step in. Whereas the Soviet Union did not have that. So I think when the Soviet Union is looking at the US, they're like, okay, no matter who we go after, if it's seen unjust, the US is going to step in on it. Versus us, we could have gone after countries. And if it wasn't in the Soviet Union's interest, they very well may not have cared. Utter hypothetical, but that would be sort of my approach to that yeah. question. I want to, yeah, if we look back to Alex's example, just for a sec, here's, I just, I think it might be worth pursuing just slightly. So, we take the fact that the US threatening to destroy Russia in a sort of mutually assured destruction meant that Russia was held back, kept at bay. That's a fact. That's a historical fact. And then we take the hypothetical that America could have, if it had been the only nation with nuclear weapons, pursued good ends in different countries by threatening them with nuclear missiles, right? Is it fair to say that we all take that hypothetical and would say that would have been immoral? If you, even if you have a good intention or you have a good outcome that you're seeking, if you go in and say, do this, otherwise we'll blow you to kingdom come, that's an immoral action. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that's the bullying, right? But, yeah. but what's the <laughs> substantial difference between the historical fact and the hypothetical situation? Because it seems to me that both are predicated on. If you if you don't do this good thing, we will blow you to kingdom come. It comes down to an active versus passive. And when we're bullying, we are the ones taking the step. No, no. Uh, or I, I, I actually I don't think it does because both scenarios, the historical fact and the hypothetical, include America explicitly saying, "If this thing happens." Or if this thing doesn't happen, so if we don't, if we don't like the outcome, we will blow you to kingdom come, right? But just one happens, to, so because both end with the destruction of a country. Just one happens to be Russia. If you try and push into Europe, will destroy you, or if you try and attack us, will destroy you. And the other is, you know, maybe they go into the Middle East and try and like settle some of the conflicts there or something. I think I think actually the hypothetical helps us see why nuclear missiles can never be used as a sort of means to reach a good outcome, even in the case of the Cold War. Hmm. So 
even as a case of deterrent or, even, or like because, bullying. Yeah. Because the deterrent is an active thing in the sense that they're saying, if this thing happens, we will react in this way. Right. And so I, I don't see how that's substantially different from this hypothetical scenario where we say, um, if you if you don't comply with this policy or if you don't settle this dispute and stop this war, we'll destroy you. I, I think there is a substantial difference. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to. Uh, there there could be. I just yeah. I, I do think it comes down to a sort of active versus passive. So in in the Cold War, as it happened. It was more like. You know, Soviet Union, this is an overgeneralization, but you can do your thing, be a country, enjoy yourself, enjoy Siberia. <laughs> you can have it. Don't take anything else or we're going to nuke you. Sure. Versus, I, I, I realize, but there is a more active component in, in where there is no pressure than applying pressure to another country saying you have to change something. It's like... Vers- holding the status quo versus changing the status quo. Okay. So, well, um, let's take let's take uh, Iraq threatening to invade Israel. So, would it have then been permissible? Let's just so let's just say in two thousand and what two thousand and three is that when the Iraq War started? I think it was. Um, let's say that nuclear missiles were not held by any nation except America. Do we think it would have been permissible for America to just text Iraq and be like, oh, you know, Trump tweets out, hey, Iraq, uh, don't invade Israel. Otherwise, we will just destroy your country. I, I don't see how. I don't see how. Man, it's can- just crazy when you put it in those terms because we've always considered it as there's another country that has it and you never use it. Sure. But like, how would the U.S. really deal with foreign policy? I mean, you could sure. you could be like, don't do this or Baghdad's going to be destroyed. Yeah. I mean, it's like. And just just try me basically, and when then when they do it, you're like, well, we had it, we had <laughs> you to do it. Tried me, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. That's a weird, it's a weird thought. But I mean, the situation we find, you know, nine nine countries. But I, I'm almost curious to, if we think about it that it is a, it's an it's an interesting thought experiment. But in a funny way, it it almost did happen. It just so happened that the other side had the same amount yeah. of power. So let's say best case scenario is no one has these weapons. Second best is everyone has these weapons and doesn't use them or not everyone. Well, we have like nine countries. Uh, the worst is everyone uses one them. country has it and then is using it to basically force everyone into submission. But, but again, so would I, you say that's prefer, would, would it be, okay, let's say unilateral disarmament. We're going to just allow Russia to be the only country to have nukes. And we say, well, for, you know, we, you're using our Catholic moral principles and we're not going to, you know, have nukes anymore. We're disarming. We're throwing them all into the Pacific Ocean. And uh, Russia is the only yeah. one who's going to have it now. And we trust them to make the moral and right decision not to bully other countries. Is that better than just holding on to it? Which I think that's the maybe that's the crux of where you guys disagree. And I think and I want to throw that in there so you guys can. Well, just, can I can I just point out? I do think that I mean, maybe maybe Jacob will say there isn't a distinction here, but I think you're using the word better very ambiguously. So for foreign policy in terms of world stability, no, I think it's better for everyone to have nuclear missiles, of course. But are we talking about the moral state? Like, what is the right thing to do? What, where is the moral onus? I think it's on disarmament no matter the cost. Because if you can't use nuclear missiles in a moral way, but you have them and threaten to use them. I don't see how 
you can call that, you know, a moral action. And so it seems that it is better, morally speaking, to disarm nuclear missiles, to, 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 you know, get rid of your nuclear missiles. Um, does it create stability for everyone to have a relatively big stick and to sort of, you know, get into a Mexican standoff? I mean, sure, yeah, like that's, I mean, better in, in a certain sense, but not for the moral health of a nation. Hmm. I agree with you, barring one major point. I think there are legitimate uses of nuclear weapons. Okay, which are? Target, military targets. Okay. I mean, so, but, those, but, then those are, get, but then that gets back to the fact, if, it, if we're not talking about mutually assured destruction, then why are these even deterrents? So, so that perhaps is a good question. And so, so some of the uh, research I was doing before this, I found this guy, Ward Wilson, uh, has a couple of YouTube, I think they're each 25 minutes, so a total of 50 minutes. And his, he's very pro-disarmament. And his whole argument is based on the idea that nuclear weapons are the currency of power. That's what he says it. He says it's actually a really interesting analogy because like any other currency, once you decide it's not founded any, on anything, they become utterly worthless. Yeah. So that's his actually major argument for disarmament is just say like nuclear weapons aren't worth anything. Like sure. the, the, the amount of time and energy you put into it would be better served elsewhere or doing other things. And, and nuclear weapons in and of themselves really aren't that anything special. That perhaps is a is a good argument, but I still think it's incomplete because I I think that nuclear weapons compared to conventional weapons are more so a difference of degree rather than kind. That being said, yeah, I think I, agree with I think nuclear weapons achieve a degree which conventional weapons cannot, mm-hmm. and so because of that, while they are the same in one regard, they are still different and they fulfill different roles. And those, I think those roles can be legitimate. Okay. So, well, there are, there are several things there. Obviously, I think we'd agree that mutually assured destruction as a policy is different in kind and not just degree. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what we're talking about now is maybe now that nukes aren't just being, the, the rhetoric surrounding them isn't merely to kill everyone. You know, is there sort of just a kind of, they're slightly more intense than conventional weapons. Um, I don't know. I mean, so the, the, again, so there are, one can make the very pragmatic argument that I just don't see why we should be spending so much money on such, I mean, essentially just slightly bigger weapons, if that's how you want to put it. But then also, I think one has to ask the question, if, if there's just a slight difference in degree and not kind, then what are they deterring? To what degree are they really deterring? Is peace, the current peace of the world, actually premised on the fact that everyone has nuclear missiles? Is that why people aren't invading each other's countries? And if you grant your position that it's really just a difference in degree, I, I'm, I, I think that becomes less and less of a convincing argument. And second of all, we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the end for which we are striving and how can we most quickly and best arrive at that end? And um, I mean, I think a great document to go to for here um, is, I think it's John the 23rd's Pachim in Terrace, you know, where he tries to, and obviously this is back in the 60s. So I don't know, actually, Alex, I feel like you're probably, you're very up on church documents. So you might even know if oh. there's been more, <laughs> more recent sort of statements from the church, but this is very much talking about 
what is the role of government in relation to the individual? Mm. What are the roles of government in relation to each other? And essentially, how can you achieve peace on earth? Yeah. And his big thing is that it's it's truth, justice, and mutual cooperation is what should dictate the relationship of states between each other. And it should not be the threat of war. And so that's the end for which we are striving, right? Is not, uh, okay, we both have really big sticks. And so if you attack me, I'll attack you. It's no, like we should be striving to work in justice and cooperation. And so I just, I think there are so many, there are so many levels, both from the pragmatic to the philosophical to the theological on which there's just no justification for that. I think nuclear weapons fall short on sort of every count. More. So you brought up church documents. Imagine I'm just throwing a bunch of hypotheticals at you guys to uh, <laughs> go for to it, to make it fun. We're, we're talking about two secular States, you know, U S and Russia, but imagine one was Catholic, right? And it seems like you were, you were talking about with John the 23rd, like the general feel of the church is you, you should disarm, right? Like nukes. Um, and that's that you what? John the 23rd explicitly calls for yeah. Patrimon Terrace. Yeah. JP2 seems to reiterate that a lot of times. Yeah. And um, so one's a Catholic state and they have obviously, um, you know, the, the, the Catholic society is in, you know, also you have to defend your people, right? And, uh, and you know, the other one's Russia, uh, Soviet Union, let's say at the time. And um, yeah, so is it is it incumbent on that country to disarm at that point in time? And I think you would say yes. And then Jacob, you would probably say no because they have the defense of their country, and because there is, uh, they need that deterrent to preserve the peace. Because if you disarm, you can't be assured that the secular non-Catholic country is actually going to not just bully you and and, and uh, ruin your country. Is that is that a fair for both of you? Is yes. that where your disagreement would be? So you would still say, even, even thinking that Russia may eventually um, really ruin your country by certain foreign policies and trade arrangements and whatever, it's still incumbent on you as a Catholic country to take away your, your nukes, to, to willingly- I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like saying- um, I mean, it's basically any scenario, like what limitations do we set on how far we can go to achieve a good end? No. And the limitation is always wrong or sin. You know, like as soon as you're crossing a line, well, then that's <laughs> that's where you should be stopping. Yeah. And the threat of... So if you're... If, again, and I think maybe and this is part of the problem, right, is that well, Jacob's saying, well, that's not really what nuclear missiles are for anymore. The whole premise of your question is, if we keep nuclear missiles, then the bad government, if we're going to use that term, won't attack or won't use them or won't bully us because they know that if they try to, we can destroy them completely. Mm. But that's not a morally justifiable action. Therefore, it doesn't matter if they can gain control over us. It's just, it's not a morally justifiable action, so we can never do it. So we shouldn't even speak as if we could do it because it's something outside the... Re because it's Got outside... It. Okay, so yeah. it's yeah. not even within the realm of possibility. Well, it, I mean, uh, so I obviously mean, physically it is, but it, sh it, it, it isn't not, moral. Yeah. Moral, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I agree with you. And actually going back to my uh, primary source, this book, 
he he does. So the so subtitle of the book is if mutually assured destruction is immoral, what options do we have? So he is acting as a Catholic under the assumption that mutually assured destruction is not an option. Mm-hmm. He cannot threaten. So while he defends possession and use of nuclear weapons under certain situations, he is highly critical of many decisions the U.S. government made, many policies and statements that they put forth um, on that principle. Because he said you can't threaten to kill an opposing population. Absolutely. His yeah. point is that you don't need to threaten to kill the opposing population for it to be enough of a deterrent. Can, can you, you just need to have, have the ability to do so? No, not even the ability. Like like the other country, because they don't want even on the on the nuclear weapon side. And hopefully, I'm getting this right. It's been a few years since I read the book. I tried to get it from Josh, but that didn't <laughs> get happen. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that didn't be tricky. Um, Shout out to the shaved Feibelman. Yes, <laughs> here's to that. Um, <laughs> Primarily, people are concerned for themselves over their country, especially, that doesn't go for everybody, especially people in power. People in power, and this is not a theory, this is his practical analysis of those people in command during the Cold War. Like Most of them would not have sacrificed themselves for their country. They asked other people to do it, and this is part of what he's critical, both on the Russian and American side. So by threatening to attack, and and he made lists, a very short select list of, and he would argue for legitimate targets, such as military command centers with high up military officials. He said even, so this is a question then that part of this, are heads of state legitimate targets? Technically, the president of the United States is a commander in chief of the armed forces of the yeah, US. I, I think he, he, is, he is a- I think we could agree- they're legitimate targets. Yeah, okay. Well, as an assassination attempt, is that what you're saying? Well, no. In a time, in a time of like war. leading the in a, army. No, in, in a time of war, can you, can you kill- Can you assassinate the, a leader? Yeah, I think you can. Can you kill an opposing head of state? I mean, state? In, in the way that you- It was legitimate to try and kill Hitler, right? There were effort, efforts to assassinate Hitler. And we wouldn't have any problem with that. Not just because he was a bad man. I mean, he's a great example because I feel like emotionally, everyone can get behind the idea of assassinating Hitler. But- Really, like we're not saying it was legitimate because he was a bad man. We're saying it was legitimate because he was the head of the the army. You know, he was calling the shots. And so it was legitimate to try and assassinate him because he was a head of state. Okay. Well, and not just a head of state or a politician or a bureaucrat, but the head the, of state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's part of his point. Um and so so he made the argument and he had various citations from different things that like and part of his evidence for this is the Soviets' attitude towards their own civilians. He said, they weren't real threatened by us killing a bunch of their people. <laughs> they did it to themselves. So that wasn't going to stop them. He says there was a very select number of high up individuals. And those are the ones, that, that was the deterrence there. And he said, most of them were legitimate military targets. Mm-hmm. So that's his point of deterrence. Is you don't, it's immoral to threaten to target an opposing population. So the US did that at times. He said, that is immoral. Yep. We, we could not have done that. But we still could have achieved the principles and purposes of deterrence in a moral way by threatening other targets. Sure. And, he, and he argued that those targets would have been enough of a ter- deterrence still. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, maybe, maybe I think that's, so maybe a couple of thoughts. So that's the big leap, right? Is that once nuclear missiles simply become 
the targeting of key leaders. To what degree? First of all, I mean, at this point, we're just talking about like a really effective sniper, you know, but it's called a nuclear bomb. So I, I think we're almost blurring some lines and and I wonder the degree to which we can call them legitimate deterrents. And second of all, I think what that argument grants is that for the first 25 to 30 years of the existence of nuclear missiles, they were illegitimate under a Catholic worldview or under a, you know, a morally realist worldview because there was for a long time the principle of mutually assured destruction. And then I think sort of the, then the kind of counter argument even to the, his, his point would be under, under the likes of, of people like Grise would be that there's never been a genuine shift in the rhetoric and actually the, the, the taking of innocent civilian life has always been built into the discussion of nuclear missiles. Uh, and I'm not, to be upfront, I'm not familiar enough with the literature to say like, yeah, I, I've read the documents. I, I can attest to that. But and real quick, I'll, I'll second that. I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't done but I think, thing, so. Based on what I've read of people who have done that research, it's always been part of the dialogue is the threat and building on the fear of taking innocent civilian life, right? Because um, I think otherwise we have to just say everything. I mean, the, the nuclear holocaust is such, such a real part of the modern imagination. Yeah. You know, the, it's in so, oh, yes. you know, I mean, you know. <laughs> How many um, video games, how many movies, how many exactly, uh, it's in yeah. the public consciousness. Not today, not as you know, not as much as it was during the Cold War, but sure. But I I think if we just say, Oh, like that's completely illegitimate, almost if we're saying like, oh, that's almost like a conspiracy theory, like that would never really happen. That isn't the real situation. That that's very uh that's not a very credible position to me yeah. because Maybe it's just because I'm. Let me give a personal example. When I grew up in Carville, Tennessee, they had um, nuclear sirens that would go off, I think, every other Saturday. <laughs> and they would go off at noon just to make sure they still worked. Mm -hmm. And it, it had just been something they had done for forever and they never stopped doing it. I think most places kind of like stopped after a while. <laughs> yeah. But I remember being as a kid, like, and they would be. By the way, our our listeners got treated to it on the intro. I don't know if you guys listened to the oh, yeah. I, yeah. the, the oh, additional yeah. intro yeah. that I made for this video uh, or for this uh, podcast rather. But um, yeah, I'd have those would go off every other Saturday at noon, and it was just. But like as a kid, just growing up, I was like, oh, whatever. That's just what it is. But man, imagine growing up like people would build like nuclear bunkers in their backyard and stuff. Like yeah. in the, in the crazy thing. Say, about, we've all been there. The, say the Cartauza. <laughs> What's that? Like, the Cartauza. Does that have a in Austria? Does that have a yeah? The current bunker? weight room. Wait, that's a that's a shuttle? nuclear bunker. Yeah, the that's weight room? yeah. They built it as a nuclear <laughs> wow. bunker. Yeah, and you I can even do that. your laundry while you're waiting for the yeah. pollution. Oh, yeah, you guys didn't get that on your tours. Yeah, that's no. that's. They pointed out like the walls there are like four feet thick. They're the thickest walls in the entire Cartaza. I mean, the real question is, would you have time from when you were given the the warning that a strike was incoming? Yeah. To uh, when it hit, would you have time to grab some Cartalza beer to bring with you <laughs> into the really that, That's the, if you're gonna hunker down, you need that. Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. grab the Eucharist and grab some Cartalza beer. Bring it all into the Tell weight room. You, 
It's crazy. Um, I mean, okay, yeah. I mean, is anyone thinking about nukes right now? No, they're all thinking COVID stuff. But like, yeah. it comes up on occasion, right? When North Korea was doing their like missile tests and it was going mm-hmm. over Japan, everyone was like, "Oh, Rocket Man and all this stuff." <laughs> but it's it's funny well, how like yeah. it went totally into the public consciousness, and you had all these movies and like people were freaking out because, and, and just think Cuban Missile Crisis. That was what people were thinking about. They were building bunkers in their backyard. They were putting up, you know, sirens as if that was going to really help you if there was a nuke coming, right? Sure. Um, and now today, it's like we're sitting on all this stuff, and um, it's not really in the public eye and the public consciousness as much. Like maybe this deterrent stuff's somewhat working a little bit. I, yeah. I don't know. Well, but, it, but it's it's yeah. one of those things. It's like and and just uh, quickly, sort of on on your point of the um about where you grew up, you know, with yeah. the with the testing of the sirens. Uh, again, just to loop back to the idea that this is still, this, is, this isn't just the stuff of the thread of bygone eras. Like it's still a credible possibility that, that we could, you know, that, that nuclear holocaust could still happen. I remember it was in Hawaii maybe, yep. what, two years ago? I remember talking yeah, about it. Yeah, it was a couple yeah, years a ago. Student yep. from Hawaii, I know what you're talking about. Everyone, and actually my... Um, so my brother-in-law's, his younger sister used to work in a restaurant in Hawaii for a while. And yeah, when she was there, you know, there was this day, everyone got a text saying, you know, there's a, what? There's a nu- nuclear, nuclear attack nu- imminent or something. Yeah, yeah. And this, like, is this, is, this is not a drill. This is not a drill. That was the problem. I they mean, said, this is not a drill. I, I mean, you just don't even know like what goes, I, 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 I'd I have to talk to her about it and see sort of what went through her head. But I mean, I can't even imagine how you handle that. You just think, Oh gosh, I should have gone to confession when I yesterday when I was <laughs> like, there. is it? Yeah, you know? but you know, but that that's the thing. So it's like it's still that was that was a you know at least for them that was a very real moment when they realized this could really happen. And I think because this was a question you asked a while ago, Alex was, do we see this as inevitable? Mm. And it's one of those things that you can never say any any human action is inevitable. I think. But do I think it's credible or likely? I mean, I, absolutely. I don't see how you couldn't because all it takes is for one person in a, in a, in a moment to make the decision, this has to happen. Right. And so obviously there's a sort of the crazy example of, gosh, I think this was back in the 80s or 90s when there was the Russian submarine that got a false reading uh, and thought that there was America had fired nukes at Russia and the captain of the submarine, the nuclear submarine, had to make the decision, do we return fire? And he couldn't get in touch with Moscow. Um, And so like he had this kind of, and he decided, I won't use them, right? And thankfully it was like, apparently it was like either sunlight reflecting on clouds or like a flock of geese or something. (laughs) You know, but like that was a moment, like he might've just fired the nukes in retaliation. What a crazy like existential moment in time we live in. I mean, it's just like you could literally be working your whole life and living living life and whatever. And then all of a sudden the sirens are going off and that's, or you get that text, right? And it really is not a drill. Yeah. And everything you've worked for, your whole family, everything by a silly decision, like a Russian guy didn't get a memo and accidentally sent a nuke. Yep. That's that's what humanity's brought us to at this point in time, right? Sure. I mean, we kind of like we're we're taking the serious arguments of deterrent, like should we have these weapons? Should we should we get rid of them and stuff? But let's just recognize like what a crazy ass world we live in that we could end up in this point. Yeah. Where that's we're you know we're what are we a hundred years removed from like like they didn't they barely had televisions and stuff. You know what I mean? Like and now it's like you could 
destroy countries yeah. within matters of, of moments, you know. Um, but, it, yeah. but anyways, it, it. I don't think we should discount the the novelty that we really haven't had enough time for this to really seep into human consciousness of like where we like how we as humans exist with these type of totally existential weapons. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and like you're saying, does the possession of weapons that leads to the destruction of humanity, like, should anyone have those? And it's like kind of universally, we, we think in our minds like, no, <laughs> we definitely should not have these type of weapons in, in an ideal uh, society and whatever. But it's that fact of like human nature's fallen, that we, we are evil, that we need grace and we need redemption, all that stuff. And, um, and the West has rejected that and the world is not accepting that. So now what do we do with it? Do we trust humanity is going to make the right decision? Do we disarm ourselves? Do we whatever? And then uh, one of the classic, you know, human things is to just procrastinate the idea and just focus on <laughs> hope other for the best. Yeah, hope for the best and worry about other issues and like push this aside. Like, like people change. right now are probably like, you guys are talking nukes, like we're in middle of COVID stuff, like why do we have to add this other like really, you know, difficult question onto our already difficult questions of our 2020 years, but it's the conversation we have to have as well. We can't just put it to the side. Yeah. Well, I. You guys can hop in, please. Yeah. Thank you. We'll, yeah, we'll get back into the debates of it. I, I think right. it would be a good idea. Oh, no. I, I was going to say, I, I think while, yeah, it, you know, kind of is, is terrifying. And I was thinking about this a little bit because what, 9 11 was 20, uh, about 10 days ago, 15 days ago. Mm-hmm. And. I was just sort of watching sort of a compilation of clips of different footage, both of the the destruction of the towers and some audio clips of people from uh, flight 911. 93? 93. Is that the flight number? Yeah. Some, 93, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's funny, yeah, because, you know, and so there's something that the clips drive home is, is the normality with which the day began and the mundanity with which the day began and then sort of how it kind of changed so quickly. And, you know, while I think this is a sort of terrible situation to, to find ourselves in in, in, a, in a very real way, there is, I think as, as Catholics, there is a certain, a certain grace that we can take from it in that it just gives you a certain perspective on life, right? And this is sort of what I've been hearing some people say about COVID as well, is that Sometimes it's, even though this is a terrible situation we find ourselves in, there's always, there's always something to be really, a very real um, lesson to be taken from it. And, and something that I think our society really is learning is recovering a realization of the reality of death. And in a certain sense, the impotence of humans to to actually stop that, you know, to, to stop the fact that, that we are all fallible and we're all destined for the grave. And it's so easy to live your life. The more and more separated you become from nature, the more and more dependent you become on technology. It's so easy to forget that and and to kind of view yourself. Uh, I mean, uh, Yuval Harai, who's this kind of popular historian, wrote these two books, um, um, Sapiens, uh, Short History of Humankind, and then Homo, Homo Deus. Uh, the the uh, history of tomorrow. Hmm. Of him. He's a really interesting guy, materialist interesting. historian. And his big thing is essentially 
human beings are on the cusp of being God in the traditional sense. Really interesting. Yeah, fascinating guy. He done a lot of sort of TED talks and Google talks. He's, you know, very, very popular today. And I think he he sort of speaks to this real empowerment that humans feel nowadays. And talking about nuclear missiles kind of helps ground us a little bit just because it makes you think, wow, yeah, like, or, or thinking about 9-11, stuff like that, like, you know, we, we are all going to die and, and our life is out of our control and, and time is a responsibility and a gift. But I, I think that should drive home for us sort of the recognition of the temporal state of affairs and and the reality of our responsibility to build the kingdom of God. I think that's why it's so important for Catholics to take a, a strong position on things like nuclear missiles. And maybe that's part of where I do think we should set ourselves apart because if we really hold to if we really hold to the 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 faith and the the stance on you know like the promotion of the kingdom of god and that's what we're building nothing else really or all things are ordered to that or for that purpose i think that gives us a certain freedom and it's it's not that there's this sort of disregard for well, what if America gets taken over by North Korea? You know, like obviously that's that's not what you're saying. It's like, oh, it doesn't matter because it's all for the kingdom of God. What you're saying is what ultimately matters is how we behave and how what standards we set for ourselves as a nation. Hmm. And I think as Catholics, our, our responsibility is to always be that voice saying the standard we should set is that which Christ gave us, right? Yeah, uh, and that's what our purpose should be. And obviously, that kind of leads into the conversation of the uh, sort of the rejection of American liberalism and the, the yeah. return to Christ. And, but no, you know, and that's, believing that's that we can actually accomplish that—that that, that yeah. Catholic society, like that—that that grace could actually change um, how and actually our does change nature. nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it and it heals its its illnesses. It's it um it perfects. it elevates it. It perfects human nature. That that could actually work and and having a kind of idealism about it that we we could get to a state where if if people truly believed and were receiving grace they could mutually disarm right um and it, this may be just a, a matter of principle with you guys with regards to these secular states that we find ourselves in of um where i see david you're you're saying we need to show the standard so that we can call even these secular people to see the glory of our standard and jacob you know saying we can't trust secular reality with these type of, you know, unilateral disarmament. Um, but the solution obviously to both is let's make them Catholic <laughs> and get them and get them to actually believe in grace and, and see it as working. And then they'll disarm themselves. You know, it, they'll, um, you know, the line will lie down with the, the lamb and, and uh, they will if beat we believe, their swords into plowshares yeah, yes. and below yes, Panama canal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if only that could, you know, if we truly believe that can that could work. I think one of the biggest things is is despairing that grace can actually change nature. Despairing that grace actually has some impact on this world, that Christ can really change it. Um, and just saying, well, there's the heavenly realm, and then there's here's our fallen, you know, stupid, idiotic, nuclear sirens going off every Saturday, stupid world that we live in. Um, if you deny the ability of heaven to inter in, you know to actually change reality and change the human condition then you're in your uh 
you know, that that's not the Catholic vision. The Catholic vision is it can actually change. There is some hope. Like we can, even if we fail, we still have to at least try, you know, um, Maybe we'll get to some point like that, but at this point, it It would be awesome. It would be awesome. It would be totally awesome. It will Um, be. We're, we're at like what? Five minutes left or something. We've tackled a lot of, a lot on nukes. Oh Oh, my goodness. We started with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think we were pretty much in agreement on like, yeah, you can't kill innocents. Uh, We got into a lot of different historical circumstances that had been an issue for me for a while because I was very, I, I not like, pro, but I always was like kind of rationalizing the decision of Truman to drop the bombs, right? The fanaticism, all sorts of stuff. So we really, I'm glad we addressed that. And then, yeah, we even got to Cuban Missile Crisis if one country had it versus if other countries had it. Um, yeah. Uh, more, any any more issues you really just want to like, as, as we end, like say we need to look into more that we didn't address or anything like that. We hit a lot of stuff, so yeah, we did hit a lot of stuff. Yeah, I guess so. My my biggest remaining point of maybe contention is the legitimate versus or the possibility of legitimate versus impossibility of legitimate use of nuclear weapons. Um, not that this was ever going to drastically change our minds or bring any great new revelation, uh, but I think at that point. I think something that I've gotten from this is that that really is the the central point surrounding the morality of nuclear weapons, which I think makes a lot of sense. Like if you can legitimately use them, then you can legitimately have them. And if you can't, then you can't and you should disarm and it's your moral responsibility to do so. So get them out of here. Yeah. I still, I still think that's, that's the big remaining question. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. And that's true, Jacob, but I think to some (laughs) degree, a lot of it boils down to in the, in the future, how do we um how do we talk about nuclear missiles because i think for so long it for so long it's been a part of cultural imagination that the nuclear missiles exist as the point of no return in human society kind of where we see the end of all things mm-hmm. and i think what what the sort of the the only practical hope we have is if if we can truly shift that conversation from and shift that sort of imaginative um, content from do these exist to destroy cities or um, destroy cripple nations to are these weapons just like the gun and the grenade which exist to kind of surgically remove or like a very highly sophisticated forms of military use, yeah. you know? Yeah. What honestly, what that makes me want yeah. to do and through this whole thing, it makes me want to look up. So like, you know, the anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was just a month and a half ago. So again, France has called for nuclear disarmament, but it makes me want to go back and, uh, and look up uh, recent political statements on nuclear weapons if absolutely there's, if there's even been well, any in the last well, while what's so. fascinating is um and i think it'd be great if we could find the name of that book for that jacob read um just so we could kind of leave it out there for people the one that i was talking about was called nuclear deterrence morality and realism by Finnis boyle and grise but i don't know if you we're able to find the name of jacob's book the, um, the title it's a fighting chance the moral use of nuclear weapons by joe martino wonderful mm-hmm. Um, so there's so extra sources for you uh, 
very academic lads out there, Kelvin and Alex show. Yeah. But no, I mean, what's interesting just, yeah, uh, in England, so the pre, so the sort of the two parties of the conservative and labor, which very, very broadly map onto Republican and Democrat. And so the leader of the labor party for sort of the past five years in England, um, well, yeah, basically from sort of 20, 2014, 15 to 2020 was this chap, Jeremy Corbyn. And he sort of replaced Ed Miliband after Ed Miliband stepped down in 2014. And he was the only U, uh, UK politician to openly uh, speak of disarmament. And he was actually very unpopular, even in his party hmm. for that position. But he said that if he became prime minister, he would disarm. In, so in England, it's called the Trident Programme. Because because of primarily how much money is spent on it and then also because of the fact that it could never be used on civilians. So it's funny because he was... And so many terrible policies. He was a terrible... I'm very <laughs> glad he never won and became uh, the Prime Minister of England because I think he was just not a good man by any stretch of the imagination. He would have been a terrible leader and his whole party is kind of not great. Not that the Conservatives are that much better, but he really would have been a bit of a disaster. But I really admired him for taking that stance because it was incredibly unpopular, but it was a principle of his that you could never use nuclear missiles and the money that was being used could be used much better on social programs because he's labor, so he's very pro-welfare. But, you know, but that was was one of the first times I had encountered a prominent politician taking a dissenting stance on nuclear missiles. Wow. And that gave me hope. (laughs) There's hope, boys. <laughs> so we maybe hope. for hu- well, not maybe not just for nuclear disarmament, but yeah, for humanity. Hopefully, um, and if you give up that hope, you know that that hope for grace, um, you're in a bad spot. You know, yeah. I actually just watched uh, Batman: The Dark Knight last night oh, and yeah. uh, really you know, enjoyed it. Yeah, um, but of course, it's it's one of those things like Batman's the hope for humanity, and and Joker's obviously like all this stuff's fallen. Like just give up any anyways, and then he gets Harvey Dent to do the same. But go ahead. <laughs> Now, did you just sort of watch it at home? Or, just here. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. because I don't know if you know this, but they're actually showing it in Robinson right now. Um, really? So basically, I think this is what a lot of movie theaters are doing is because, you know. There's not a lot of new releases. There's not a lot of new releases. They're doing a lot of reruns. And so they're actually, they're, re- they're rerunning currently in Robinson. They're rerunning The Dark Knight. So I was a little tempted to go and see it. But uh, <laughs> just because, can you imagine seeing that on the big screen? That'd be pretty Oh, it'd epic. be so cool. Yeah. It'd be so cool. Uh, yeah, it, it, it all comes back to like <laughs> Catholic social order and like some men just want to watch the world. But yeah, I know. Yeah, no. And if you had one guy with nuclear weapons who wants to see the world burn, right? I mean, you're in a bad spot. And then, <laughs> and then, and then we go back to those questions of like, well, do you retaliate? Do you whatever um, unilateral disarmament? Anyways, how would we defend? Our, you know, two-hour ramblings on nuclear weapons. You know, how do we defend that to people that this is worth bringing back into the public consciousness? Of we should be having these. Co- yeah, where coherence goes to die. Why bring this to where coherence goes <laughs> to die? Like, uh, maybe briefly, fellas. Like, why is this an issue people should care about and be thinking about, be arguing about, be dealing with? So I think there's various factors. Maybe the one most immediate actually, because we're not right now under any, as far as I can tell, terribly immediate threat of nuclear war, but you know, you're never that far from it, um, would be the financial implication. So part of it, I was um, 
looking up some stuff. And the U.S. is actually in the process of updating our nuclear arsenal. So we're still, our ICBMs are Minuteman 3, which I think premiered in 1970 or something. So they're, they just awarded a new contract for new, uh, all new missiles. They're building a new, it's a B-21 Raider bomber designed to carry um, B-61, our, our tactical nuclear weapon. And the B-61 bombs themselves are being updated at a price of $48 million a bomb. And so the the, the money- so More than I spend on my suits. So that would be, I mean, in a sense, one of the more minor reasons. But on the other hand, I mean, hoping we never do go to war, that money or loss thereof is still going to, it's going to have an impact. So, so that's one reason that just, it touches everybody, even if you don't think about it. Financial parts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I think very much so sort of on that, you know, it touches everyone, even if you don't think about it, what does it say about society that for over 50 years, we've lived with the reality of nuclear missiles and we've got to the stage where we don't question the fact that we have it. So coming from the stance of someone who, supports disarmament, even if it's unilateral, right? From my position. What does it say about us that we've got to a stage where culturally we've accepted that it's part of the fabric of life that we have these missiles that could destroy nations? So I think you should care about it if you care about the soul of your nation, the the state of your nation. Mm. You should care about it if you're thinking, how do I want my society to be? What society do I want my children to grow up in? And, And what do I want to contribute as a member of society? That is very much dictated by the attitudes your society has to human life and the orientation that it has towards its role in the world, right? And if we see our role in the world as primarily being prepared to destroy other nations if they if they pose a significant enough threat, then, gosh, like this is something we need to talk about, you know? It's like a... It's pretty serious. It's worth talking about, especially on the Kellen and Alex show. Boys, wow. This has been quite the podcast. Uh, thank you both for coming on. Yeah, thanks all for having me. Thanks it's been for awesome. Having it's been this explosive. Been, uh, I'm excited to see the fallout great from risky. all of our fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Josh will like that. Josh will like it, I'm sure. Dude, Josh, the king of puns. The king of puns. I got to have him on sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's going to wrap it up for us uh, on the Kellen and Alex show. Guys, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back soon. Actually, I, I may be doing a, a pod. So Faith Cirilla called us out on Facebook because uh, our last podcast, we talked about homeschooling in a negative light. So she might be coming on the podcast to defend homeschooling. Actually. Fantastic. That'd be pretty yeah. I, I don't know. Were you, either you homeschooled? I was homeschooled second through eighth grade. Okay. I was homeschooled all the way. Public school all the way over here, boys. So uh, yeah, that should be interesting. And that may be coming either Saturday or Tuesday. But uh, anyway, so that's going to wrap it up for us. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and peace out.